on the front is the note side. On the back is if we get to it, since I've been finishing really early, I decided that since tonight is about worship and worshiping together, even though my point is that worship is not exclusively singing, I really like singing. So uh, I thought we would try it. I was hoping maybe a couple more people might show up just so we have a couple more voices to drown out. Like, there's usually... Joyful noises. Yeah, there's <laughs> typically... Uh, there's typically some uh, happiness and, and uh, willingness to sing out loud in numbers. So... But we'll just have people just have to rip it tonight. We might have more coming, and then we'll, we have one of the ensembles. So well, my dad, he's a really, really good singer, so hopefully he knows the songs that we sing. So, um, so tonight our goal is going to be um, to discover what worship really is. I could put a million different words in there. Truly is, uh, biblically is. Um, yeah, so I didn't know what to put, but... And I think you'll get the feel for what I'm trying to get get across tonight with that. And, and we're just going to look at three or four texts, five texts. I'm going to have them up here. Hopefully, you don't have to squint too hard. And uh, we're going to. I'm just going to read them, and we're going to discuss what we can glean. We're not going to. This is not going to be an all-inclusive conversation about the topic of worship. Okay, because we could. There have been books written, seminars, conferences, sermon series. So this is one 30-minute period of time in which we're just going to tease some some things out. Um, so to build down, as my one of my seminary professors would like to say, to build down your expectations. Uh, we're not going to solve all the worship war problems here in the next 35 minutes. But hopefully we'll at least provide something profitable. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll get discussing. Father, thank you for um, the fact that as I was uh, singing today in the car and thinking a lot about the fact that you are sovereign over us, that you are in control of every uh, little detail of our lives, not just the big ones and the, uh, and the medium-sized ones, but even down to the fine nitty-gritty things of like the fact that my dad got stuck by a train tonight and um, we're all sitting here tonight. So I just I thank you that um, there is a, a rest and a relief and that um, the weight of the world that rests on our shoulders can be somewhat lifted when we look or our, our, our raise our eyes up and look to you rather than um, the, the overwhelming circumstances of our lives. So help us tonight as we consider your greatness and your goodness, which certainly includes your sovereignty. Help us to enjoy the prospect of worshiping you and to see worship as it is rightly um, described in your word. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so if I could ask you this, and this is going to be my intent is for me to speak less and you to speak more and to be kind of a a more of a discussion-oriented thing tonight. So um, I'm going to try to ask this question concisely and then if you don't understand what I'm asking ask me and I'll try to re-explain could you recount some false or inadequate descriptions of what worship is so if you think back on maybe your church experience or books you've read or um, 
ways even you've seen it happen, can you recount or describe to me, to us, either unbiblical or false or maybe even inadequate um, descriptions or definitions of what biblical worship is? Of, um, right away, running up, sorry, running up and down aisles. Fair enough. <laughs> I've seen it. It's like that's when I was searching. Sorry. Yeah. When I was uh, just a new believer and not having a church home and stuff. And just, you actually I, saw you went to a church like that. I did, but I didn't know that. I was so. I didn't know that that, that was going to happen. It was weird for me. <laughs> so, and, um, yeah. But I just, I visited, and that was, like, the last, like, yeah. just one day. And that you was should it. Google holy laughter. That's it. <laughs> oh, Do you know that was the second thing that, that was going to come out of my mouth was that? Like, holy laughter. I've heard of that. Okay, so that's I'm an obviously radical version of, uh, inadequate or in that case false version of worship or description of worship. What is that when people just go up? They just It's like hyper charismatic stuff. They just I'm sorry, they just run up and down the aisles. They get really hopped up on the spirit, supposedly, and I should they run up they run up and they literally run up and down the aisles. You should Google tonight when you go home, laying in bed, holy laughter. Also, and it's uh, kind of—I mean—it's kind of funny and sickening all at the same time. Yeah. I won't. I—I I mean, it's been a long time since I've actually googled that. So if something bad comes up, just a little disclaimer. But. And then also, um, I've heard. Was I had a church like that again visiting? But it might have also been on tapes that I had, and then all of a sudden the person was speaking in tongues. That's like. Not the obviously the biblical way of what it is that the actual language is, but it was this stuff coming out of the person's mouth you don't even understand. It's so freaky weird. So that's also a very not a right way of worship. Okay. Question, Dad, is um, could you describe or recount false or inadequate? Definitions or descriptions of what worship looks like. sense of obligation more than out of true sincerity. Okay. I don't know the best way to describe that. 
feel at times that uh, the way the present day evangelical church views worship, they view it sometimes too narrowly as in just focused on either the corporate like the church wide gathering on a Sunday morning or even more narrowly singing this is our worship time let's sing right Hey, it's time to worship. Yep, and it's almost and it's and it's not that that's inaccurate, right? It's not that that's wrong. Of course, that's worship, but worship is is broader than that. So sometimes maybe it's that's why I asked not just false but inadequate. That would be an inadequate view of worship because it's too narrow. I think Mr. Brown helps with that because he always mm-hmm. calls it worship through giving. Yes. Right. So it makes in your mind that giving is part of your worship. Right. right. I mean, so every aspect of our service is an aspect of worship. Mm-hmm. What about, um, this could be opening up a can of worms, but, uh, Maybe worship can only be acceptable musical worship can only be with organ and orchestra, mm-hmm. right? You know, like uh, this high classical style version of, right? or it can only be hyper charismatic. Everyone's, you know, running down the aisles. And those would, that might, those, that aside, the holy laughter thing, right? But there's not necessarily anything inherently wrong with having emotion being part of our our worship. Actually, I'm going to suggest that it ought to be. You got like this high classical view would also be, that's a great way to worship, right? But so it would be a false or an inadequate view of worship to restrict it to a one geographic context, right? And then assume that your way of doing it is the only right way. So what I would like to try to propose to you is a definition that popped into my head last night, I think it was last night, of worship. So if it's wrong, totally take all the blame. Um, I didn't get it out of a book. It was just sitting there. I was just sitting there in my bed thinking about if I had to define worship, how would I define it? I'm not saying this is the best or even good, but here's how I would like to suggest we define it. And for our purposes tonight, this is how we're going to do it. Now I'm going to attempt to, through the texts, argue this. A believer's humble response to the greatness and goodness of God. Worship, biblical worship, true worship, real worship, is a believer's humble response 
to the worthiness of God or the greatness and goodness of God. worship is a believer's humble response to the greatness and goodness of God and I'll try not to tease this out too much now um, because we will actually I will not I'm not going to tease any of it out right now we're just going to look at the text because I'll start talking and then it's not what I want to do anyone else need more time to write that down all right so the first text is John 4 which is a text that all of us are most likely familiar with it's Jesus woman of Samaria and I'm just going to we're going to kind of like dive bomb in the middle of the whole section and pick it up in verse 19 sir the woman said I see I can see that you are a prophet our ancestors worshipped on this mountain which I believe was Mount Gerizim where she is at but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem here comes Jesus. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, here's where the emphasis is coming, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So what are some things that we could glean uh, from this text? Maybe directly, explicitly from the text, and maybe as we just kind of mull it over and meditate on it, what are some things that we we can learn about worship from um, this interaction Jesus has. The type of worship that is being talked about is in the future, obviously from this writing, could even be in reference to the future for us today, in that when we worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He could be talking about worshiping in you know, in the eternal kingdom. Um, yes and no. So he is talking obviously future from his perspective, but um, this is the the type of worship that he's describing here is the type of worship that we experience now because we are no longer bound, right, to going to a in Jerusalem, right? Um So there's a, a uniqueness about the Spirit coming, and and now we are all temples because the Spirit of God resides in us. So what would that say that that there's not a geographical restriction? What? Don't have to be in a certain spot. Right. So you could literally be worshiping God in your car not sacrificing a goat with a priest in a temple right so that would be one thing that we would learn so that the age that we are in whatever age we are in um, 
in the history of biblical, uh, the flow of biblical history, we're, we are no longer in the age that is geographically restricted to worship. So that's cool. What, what else might this text imply for us? Just think about, like, if you're living and acting in a way that reflects his image back to him. So when you're being obedient to him, is another way in which you're, you know, acting in the spirit or in the truth. Since if you're in obedience, you're in the truth. Okay. So our our you're actually even going a step further to say that even our actions are an act of worship when we are obeying them. Um, we'll get to that in a, in a few texts. Know what we're worshiping. Right. What was that? We know what we're worshiping. Okay. We worship what we do know. Okay. What What about the fact that um, Jesus uses the idea of he qualifies worshipers. He says true worshipers. Because there are false worshipers, right? Because not everyone can really worship. I mean, yes, we can think, oh, well, in a sense, one day the rocks are going to cry out and everyone bows down. And so maybe in that sense, everyone at some point in time will worship. But only believers can worship, right? Right. Because only believers have the Spirit. Only believers actually grasp the significance of the truth of God's Word in their life. So only true believers can worship. And sometimes it's it's something that we don't even, it's like not even on a radar screen, it's an assumption, but we never state it. But I think that if we think about it that way, that has significant potential implications in our philosophy of ministry about how the way, why, why we do what we do. And we'll talk, we'll tease that out later. So, at least we can glean those two things, two, three things. Worship is not is no longer in our place in biblical history uh, localized to a specific geographical area. Only true believers are true worshipers. And there's an element of obedience and um, energizing by the Holy Spirit that goes into it. So we could we won't beat a dead horse. So we have those three things. Let's leave it there. Then Colossians chapter 3 Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body church you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ or the word of Christ the gospel dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through hem- uh, psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let us go back to verse 16. And, re- and just let's think contextually 
Paul is the author writing to a, a local church in the city of Colossae, right? So he's talking about this one body of which they are all members in this local assembly. So he's writing, imagine, now thousands of years later to Community Bible Church with Betty and Pete and Troy and Linda and everybody else in mind. And he says, let the gospel, let the word dwell among you richly. So take up residence. Like it, it becomes its home in us. As you teach, and listen how the teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom happens. It's through the singing of psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. From thankful hearts. So while... Well, I won't even start talking. What can we glean from that? Particularly in light of what we just gleaned from John 4. you said so all of those things are right so I'm not trying to discount those two things but uh, Carrie you went right for the jugular in my mind is that so the first text worship is universal right and it's restricted to believers but it's universal geographically it's not confined to a specific time place and all that but then we come to Colossians and we see that there's this corporate like there is an, a sense in which worship is happening through the singing of God's people when we gather. So this is an, an essential element of worship, right? The idea of corporate gathering. And it's and this, I think, has particular implications as well, which we will get to if I remember them. <laughs> but corporate... We gather, we assemble, and our worship has a vertical dimension, but this text tells us it also has a horizontal dimension, an edifying dimension. So then we go to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which say, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what does that say about worship? I mean, we just went from no geographical borders only true believers worship. And, and we're thinking even in John 4, even though it's universal, there's this idea like we're still thinking like 
you know, formal types of worship because we're still thinking you know, temple sacrifices and stuff. And then we, Colossians 3, now it's corporate gathering. Like we're all together. We're singing, making joyful noises, good, bad, and the ugly. It's all good. And then we get to this text. And what does it say? What? Worship him individually in, in your mind and in your the way um, okay. So what, Carrie? The way you live. Yeah, worship is worship is life. Right? I mean, so like when, when you're driving you're worshiping. I mean, when you're sleeping, it's worship. I mean, everything, everything, there's nothing that can escape some being done for the glory of God in everything that we do is for God's glory. So everything that we do is that the very fact that we take a breath is is worship because we're completely dependent on God who gives us that breath so our life is worship and in this text kind of even teases that out it's 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 sacrifice it's living for God it's verse two not allowing ourselves to be conformed into the mold of the world but being transformed being sanctified that is worship to God. It's it's those daily moments of saying no to sin and yes to obedience to God. That's worship. But we typically don't think of worship that way, right? We think of singing as worship. We think of Chris Tomlin as worship. We think of, you know, Keith and Kristen Getty as worship. We think of Anthony and Carol as worship. We don't think of my obedience in the trenches of my life, not yelling at that idiot driver, is worship. Not parking over the line the night of the Halloween thing. Just kidding, Joe. <laughs> I just had to get the last dig. I know. He parked over the line on Halloween night. We couldn't get in. But he moved. Because he's a nice guy. Psalm 145. We're going to have two slides to get all the way through this. But just listen as I read. You can write down Psalm 145. But I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. 
The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all his promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. I think that's it. Nope. Hang on. Last one. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. So, what does Psalm 145 have to uh, contribute to our thinking? it goes back to that only a true believer can worship a believer is worshiping through humble his humble response to the greatness and the goodness of God and Psalm 145 details the greatness and goodness of God his grace his mercy his loving kindness his compassion his awe his kingship So I say a believer's humble response. We haven't really talked about the humble response part. How do you even how do you get away from the idea of worship without humility? Because what does worship assume? Yeah. They're better than me. So I can worship Michael Jordan because he's a better basketball player than me. But that worship can only go so far, right? Because I'm better than him at some things. And he's an awful dude. (laughs) You know, I could worship Tiger Woods because he used to be a really awesome golfer, but he's a really awful dude too. I can think, well, Rory McIlroy, he's got a sweet golf swing. I can worship his swing, but I don't know much about that guy. You know, and then I could, well, I could worship Stephen Curtis Chapman because he's an amazing musician and a godly guy. But he's not perfect. He's not great and good like God. So there's something unique about believer, humble response to the greatness and goodness of God. There's a humility because we are not God. 
we are under God. We are subservient to Him. What is what is our life supposed to look like? It's we are to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God because we understand that priority that James 4 talks about. We are to submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God. But then I think that sometimes we fail this to understand this idea of worship is a response. Worship is not um, something that we just idly do. It's a response, as Pete was talking about earlier, of obedience in, in the ins and outs of life. It's an act of obedience. Um, it is a response. It is something that we do. And I say a, hum, a humble response because we have to be interacting we have to be engaged in all our faculties with what we're doing. It's not just like a reflex. I think if you and I are being honest, if, oh, let me just put me in there. If I'm being honest, it's harder to do here because I'm not familiar with all the songs at CBC. But like having grown up in inner city, sing the same hymns for however many years I went to 30 years or whatever 37 so I went there for probably 30 years and like you just you walk in and open your hymn book or you look at the screen and you just start singing and all of a sudden you're like I have no idea what I'm saying I'm just but I'm singing and I'm making noise but I'm not engaging. It's it's a reflex. It's not a response. But this is a humble response, and it's a response that it that transcends just singing. It's a response in our everyday life, as we talked about. So, what are some implications of what we've talked about? A believe worship is a believer's humble response to the greatness and goodness of God. Well, here's one. I think we do this really, really well, and Ken beats the drum of this, and I believe it's the new commerce orientation or one of those classes is that if worship is only for believers, if only believers can worship then it not only doesn't make any sense to tailor a worship service after the desires and, and likes of an unbeliever it actually could be downright confusing and uh, mislead them Unbelievers can't worship God. So the seeker-driven model of church growth, I think, fails in this area because they they specifically target, we want this demographic of people, what do they like? And then we're going to tailor everything about around what they like. And so everything becomes about um, treating them as a consumer. Now, I'm all for, based on uh, 1 Corinthians, that what we do is intelligible or understandable to outsiders. So that's why I truly appreciate how we flush these things out at CBC, because we actually explain what we're doing every Sunday, assuming that onlookers are there. Um, But we do not craft our worship 
service after a believer because they can't worship. That's why we have our worship service first. Yeah, because then we most likely people would the guests, they would rather come later than earlier. Yeah. So one of the other things is, and this is a little bit hard to tease out directly from this, but we talked about in Colossians 3 that this is a corporate thing, right? When, so when we are together, and we're worshiping all of life, but when we are together corporately and we're gathered as a ch- local church, we are singing, we are worshiping God. And I think that means, if those things are true, what we, we discussed, then worship is not entertainment. That I'm not saying that you can't ever have special music, can't ever enjoy a concert of Christian music. But worship is not entertaining. So, I think the emphasis of Scripture, while it does not say special music is not good or not, because special music can be a way of teaching and admonishing one another, right? Through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. But I think the primary emphasis of Scripture is on the corporate body all, sing, uh, all singing all lifting their voices, teaching and admonishing one another through song. I think that's something to consider. Especially when many of us come from like a high church background where it's, you know, the operatic choral style and while that's good and it has its place, um, sometimes we can get lulled into thinking that, you know, worship is entertainment. We cannot ever get to that place. Yes. I think that, that in, in the music aspect of it, the the music itself can't overtake the uh, the words of the song. Even though there might be times where you just have instrumentals, like uh, your, your your orchestra plays or whatever. Uh, but most of the time, I think you may do it when the orchestra is playing the words to the music that they're playing is maybe up on a screen so you're not just listening to you know uh, some guitars and violin and a piano organ play uh, your their music is the way in which the message of the words is delivered to you uh, and that's what you're really looking for and what you're using to worship is the words and what those words say about God and his greatness and his goodness and how we how we can exalt and respond to him through those words, not just not just listen to a bunch of music, uh, you know, and the performance of that music. It's got to be it has to be controlled and you know so that you really can use the words to exalt God, not to just the music itself. Another thing that we brought up. Believer's humble response. So, Christ says the greatest commandment is to love God with every aspect of who we are, every facet mind, body, soul, and strength. And then to love our neighbor as ourselves. To love God is worship. So we are to love him with everything that we are. So if that's the case, 
then our worship of God must be holistic in nature. And what I mean by that is it cannot be merely an intellectual endeavor. We can get some really awesome songs with great lyrics. But sometimes we can be so focused on that, which we have to have that, because our worship is defunct without truth, right? Because we worship in the spirit and truth. But if if it's just merely an academic, intellectual thing that gets here and never gets here, then then there's there's a problem. And and my hunch is you've grown up in very conservative churches like myself like I swear there's like a like something's broken sometimes because it's like my emotional thing uh, I think one I think that the cathedrals used to sing like your blesser I can't remember how it went, but it was some old Southern Gospel song that talked about, you know, if you've never shouted or something, your blesser ain't never been blessed. If you've never just, you know, mm-hmm. been really enthusiastic about singing praise to God. Well, I feel like that disconnect between head and heart sometimes exists because, like, you're almost conditioned yeah, that, you know, that. emotion is not to be in play in worship. My question is, is that if we were really grappling with the truth of what is being sung, and we were to humbly assess where we are at in light of who God is, if we were to humbly do this, how could we, our emotions, not be involved? Um, How could that not stir us? And I don't know, I don't have a good answer as to how we fix the the emotional conditioning that many of us have been, been raised in to say we must be anti-emotion because if we are anti-emotion, we are headed down the tubes to be a charismatic. <laughs> I don't know how to fix that problem, but I think it exists. Um, so, as a complete aside, I'm done. Um, I wanted to just pass on something that's been really, really helpful to me. Um, I've never forgot it in probably 15 years when I first heard Pastor Dorn preach this message. But he preached a message on God-honoring worship songs. You can go on sermonaudio.com and you could listen to it. It's buried somewhere in there. I don't know. It's probably one of his most played sermons, I think. What's it called? I think it's called God-honoring worship songs or something like that. And he gives a three-step kind of like paradigm, a way to select worship music or a way to think about worship songs. So this is just like an addendum to our lesson. Just think about it. A worship song must be accurate, must be accessible, and appropriate. And so when he's talking about a worship song, he's talking about a song for the corporate church. When we sing together, it must be accurate, must be accessible and it must be appropriate I think that if we think about worship music that way when we're just honing our our thoughts in on worship music that's a really really good thing 
It's very practical, it's very accurate, it's very biblical, it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. Accurate. Does it accord with the truth of God's word? Is it accessible? Can everybody sing it? If it is a funeral dirge from the 1800s, we got issues. If it's got a range that only a, a trained opera singer can hit, well, then we got issues. Now, some people just cannot sing anything, and that, well, we're not going for you. <laughs> you know, but, Pete, thank you for the testimony. Um, I look forward to hearing that in a few minutes if we get to it. Um, but, I think that's really important. Can we all sing it? If, if, if Colossians 3 is right, that we're all supposed to be singing together. And then the last one, is it appropriate? Um, not necessarily all styles of music might be appropriate for a given context. Right? So singing really old hymns um, might not necessarily all with, with really big words might not be the best not to, to, to teach my son at six years old who doesn't understand what here I raise my Ebenezer and come to the found. He's going to have a tough one with that. I mean, he won't even be able to say it. Which would be awesome to hear him try to say it, actually. <laughs> but you get, you get my trust. So there's an appropriateness. And I, I think, I can't remember if Pastor Dorn included it here or not, but also an appropriateness in the fusion of the, maybe this is just, he needs to come up with another A word to fit this, but an appropriateness of the, the complementary nature between the text of the, the song and the music of the song. My dad alluded to it, I think the text, the truth, has to be king, and the music has to be subservient. It's, think of the music as a vehicle. The music is the vehicle. We cannot, and so sometimes, you know, we, we want to be, like, sometimes we want to be so conservative that we rob the music of it, its unique, uh, its uniqueness as a vehicle because we want to be so conservative. And sometimes we take away what really helps make that, that music a good vehicle to that, uh, and we rob it of its emotion because that music helps set the framework and set the tone for the truth, but the, that music should never overpower or dominate that truth. Truth should be the king, and this is just the vehicle. It's the yeah, it's the vehicle. I don't know how to put it. So, for whatever it's worth, that's all I got.